to the big thing from Total Soccer Show, the weekly show where we sink our teeth into a meaty topic in the beautiful game. Today, we're looking at the England national team. Finalist at Euro 2020, semi-finalist at the last World Cup, and now, apparently, had a bit of a low ebb. Winless in six, low on confidence, and entering a major tournament with uncharacteristic low expectations. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me to big figure it out on a topic I'm a bit nervous to talk about, we have the Old Dominion's very own Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Taylor. <laughs> Hello, my friend. Do you mind being called the Old Dominion's very own Taylor Rockwell? I'm not sure which one that meant, but we do have Old Dominion University, so I'll take it here in Virginia. Yeah, the Old Dominion's fine. Yeah, okay. I'll, that's the last of the Old Dominion rebel colonies, colonies uh, conversation <laughs> for now. Uh, but also here joining us, Taylor, we have uh, a resident of what I'm going to call England Junior. Graham Ruffin, hello. <laughs> that's Wales. Come on. <laughs> Gra- Graham, do you see what's happening here? I-, I appreciate the preemptive shots, knowing that this is yes. an entire episode about England and are they okay? What's going wrong? Is Southgate the manager for them? I feel like this is all just projection from Ryan in the opening minutes. And oh, yeah. I understand, Ryan. I just want you to know we love you and we're here for you. That's what I have to say in response. Shots? Me? No. I've been waiting my whole life for this podcast. Nothing can bring me down. All right, Ryan, I love you. Graham is probably here to take some shots. Yeah, that's probably fair. (laughs) All right. Well, I love you both, and I can't wait to give Graham a big hug in New York when we do our live show. It's tough love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our live show, November 20th, I think. Isn't isn't tough love just called love in Scotland? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) There's no difference. (laughs) All right. My attempt to plug the live show has been trampled on. That's fine. Find a ticket link if you want in the uh, description, listener. Yeah. Live show, November 20th. Come see us. This is the witty banter and overtalk that you're going to get in that live show. So come on down for it where you'll be able to see us bicker on stage, but in a fun way, not in a passive aggressive way. Exactly. If you like a tight ship like we're just demonstrating right now, come and see us in New York. Please do. Uh, Why don't we start off uh, with this pod, gents? I'd like to ask a general question about how you actually perceive the England national team, like as as a general thought. Do you think England is arrogant? Do you see them as yes. underachievers or scrappers? Yes. Graham, why don't you jump in and expand on that? Yes to all, I think, is my answer. Um, no, but seriously, I, I think England, in the past, I thought of them as arrogant, certainly around about 2006. 2010, I think, was the the worst World Cup for me as, as an outsider, because at least in 2006, I thought England had one of the best teams in the world. They only made the quarterfinals at that tournament. Certainly on paper, one of the best teams in the world. And I thought England, that tournament, were capable of of winning a World Cup. 2010, I think England had a, a, a brilliant qualification campaign, but you could see that that team wasn't quite up to the same standard. And there was a lot of arrogance going into that tournament. And I and, and a lot of Scots didn't think that team matched up to that arrogance. And that was kind of proven at the tournament itself. But more recently, the 2018 World Cup, I thought... Um, was kind of the sweet spot for England a little bit, where there, there weren't, there wasn't much in the way of expectations ahead of that tournament, but there was enough talent to make an impression at the tournament, and they made the semi-finals. Could have made the, the final. That semi-final against Croatia, I think, was a very winnable game. Ryan, I think you would agree uh-huh. with that. So, 2018 felt like the sweet spot. 2020 was obviously a good tournament as well, but coming into this World Cup, I, I, I sense the arrogance maybe rising again, and that doesn't always. Uh, end well for England and it seems like the the preparations for the World Cup have already uh, taken a bit of a beating. Do you see the arrogance rising outside of me? <laughs> Seriously? 
Um, after the after the Euros, yes, I think okay. so. I think more recently, not so much because the form has been so bad, which is right. why we're we're doing this podcast. But yeah. I think after the Euros, it, it, yeah, there was there was a bit of a bit of uh, arrogance there. This is already a very interesting conversation because I think it reveals the differences in coverage. I think similar to probably how. Uh, like people in the UK aren't as up on US soccer Twitter and the like antipathy towards Greg Berhalter and the team at present. Uh, I think a lot of fans over here don't really follow the media coverage of the team. I think they don't really follow a lot of the fan uh, like centric coverage of England. And so I think some of that drama, some of that uh, sort of, I don't know, uh, apoplexy is lost uh, when it comes to the coverage of England. So instead, I think the way they tend to be perceived over here is a team that is talented but underachieves, and I think often underachieves because of their own shortcomings, be it the manager in certain competitions, be it a lack of like individual quality that can make the difference. I, I think with England, it's it's a team that is always seen as like, ah, oh, yeah, they're good, but they're not quite at that level. Like I think rarely do people really talk about them as a World Cup contender or a Euro contender. They're always in that like second tier, fairly mm-hmm. or unfairly. I think that's how they end up getting perceived over here, at least from my perspective yeah i think i think right now the last few years there's been a bit of a change in that and that i look at that england squad yep and i think they are good enough to win a world cup um so maybe some of the arrogance is actually warranted recently yeah. england made Not, the euros yeah. final might have won yeah. that game maybe should have won that game italy obviously out of that that, that match second best in that match for long periods um but the I think that's the discussion around Southgate, isn't it? Is he getting enough out of this this group? I think in the past, in 2018, you could very strongly argue he was the perfect man for the job back then. But as this England team matures, it kind of feels like they're moving on and leaving Southgate behind them. And actually, rather than emboldening England, he is the one maybe dragging them back a little bit. I, I don't feel comfortable going with that just yet. But I will say, Graham, you're absolutely right that I think some of the way I've just described them is probably pre-2018. And I think like the vibes around the team, the unicorn uh, floaties, things like that. Mm-hmm. I think it was the first time I've seen England sort of be happy, seem like yeah, they, they were a happy collective unit. Yeah, exactly. And so I, it did seem like they had turned a page the year, uh, with the World Cup in 2018. It was like that, that one semifinal that could have been the difference. And then you get to the final and, and it felt like it was there for the taking and it just doesn't work. Maybe that does come down to Southgate's shortcomings as a tactician. I'm sure we will talk about that. But you're right that it definitely has more recently felt like a team that has the talent and the ability. They just don't always have the belief or the execution. All right, well, let's talk about that, maybe the execution, Taylor. We want, let's dig into what's actually gone wrong for England at the moment. And I'm going to start off this conversation by saying something that which probably won't help the arrogance uh, oh. side of things. Oh, no. But <laughs> I, think, I think the Nations League results and recent, these last six results in which England have been winless, I think we're reading a bit too much into them. Mm. Uh, you bear in mind that <clears throat> two of those games were against, were against Italy, and it's not the greatest Italy team in the world. We all know that. But they are European champions. Um, two of those games were draws with Germany, who are, you know, a famous opponent who are, you know, in, in also not at their highest ever at the moment, but also a very good team. And the others were against a pretty resurgent Hungary team who also beat and drew with Germany. And it's famous last words from me. And it, once, once again, it doesn't help uh, with the arrogant side of things, but with the Iran, the USA and Wales coming up, 
I would say that's not the same caliber as opposition as Italy, Germany, and Hungary, arguably. I mean, different circumstances, a tournament, and we know the US are very strong in tournaments and so on and so forth, but it's yeah. a slightly different kettle of fish. And if you look b- 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 beyond those six games, that um, this, this winless streak, let's call it, you know, the last winter international break, there was a 5-0 win over Albania. There was a 10-0 win over San Marino. In March, England beat both Switzerland and the Ivory Coast. So, in a way... I'm totally comfortable with this win this streak because even that last 15, 20 minutes against Germany when it was actually exciting and positive, that's enough for me to go into this tournament thinking I'm not worried it's going to be a complete disaster. Taylor, does that make any sense? Ryan, I don't think you were totally comfortable even saying that you were totally comfortable. So I appreciate <laughs> the narrative that, you, that you're trying to establish there. And I do understand what you mean, that the Nations League depending on your perspective, is a competitive competition that you want to win or is a series of glorified friendlies, you can take it either way, I think. Um, And I think if you're seeing it as glorified friendlies, then you're right. Some of the importance of those losses and and the resoundingness of some of those losses, I feel like you kind of skipped over that hungry 4-0 there. Uh, But (laughs) I, I, I hear you. I think then the question becomes, okay, then what have you learned? How has the team evolved? How has the team improved or at the very least does Southgate now understand this team better do the players understand the system do the players understand how they can adjust from a back three to a back four and back to a back three if that's what has to happen and that's where I hear you that the results necessarily aren't that big of a deal because ultimately it's what are the results in those in those three group stage games but the question then becomes what have you learned and this is where I think there's just so many parallels to the current U.S. team because yeah, even yeah. In, in the way you were just describing them it's sort of how I would be like well you know we beat like this CONCACAF team that's kind of a minnow and this CONCACAF team that's kind of a minnow so like things are fine uh, a 10-0 win over San Marino to me is like uh, a 5-0 win over Cuba or something like that uh, but I, I still think the question then becomes what have you learned is this team better? And I'm not sure the answer is yes. Yeah. And I'm not sure the answer is yeah. we've learned a lot. I, I, I'm not sure if it's a case of reading too much into it. I think it's I think it's about trying to take the measure of a team before the World Cup, and this is the evidence that we have right now. So with the USMNT, it's friendlies that we have as evidence. They're not even playing. I know the Nations League. It, it's a little bit difficult to gauge the Nations League, league and I, I totally understand why nations like England maybe don't see it as competitive as other tournaments because from Scotland's perspective we do take it as seriously as other tournaments do you know why we take it as seriously as other tournaments because it's group qualification a, <laughs> this is a this is a path what did you say Taylor group A baby yeah group A yeah of course we, we can't forget that group A Scotland group B England but genuinely the reason Scotland takes the Nations League so seriously and other kind of smaller countries as well is it's a path to Euros qualification we've got a playoff from this so that's why it's so important and England generally just kind of qualify through the normal uh, process so it's not as important to them and that's in that uh, respect but as i as i was saying with you just take the the, the most recent evidence so with the usmnt it's friendlies with england it's the nations league and um i i personally think there's still enough competition in there to draw some solid conclusions from the other point i would make is yes ryan i take i take your point that england have been playing a high caliber of of, of opponent but these are the teams that England are going to need to beat if they want to win a World Cup. And that is the objective for England now. It might have been different in 2018, where I think everyone thought making the semi-finals was a success. Now, having made semi-finals, final, what's the next step after that? That's winning it. That's that's what's going to make this a successful tournament for England. And they're going to need to beat your Italy's and your... Who else was in the group? Germany and Hungary's and all those sort of yeah. teams. So I, I think it's still fair to gauge 
something from the, the results and certainly the performances as a whole. All right, we can dig into what warrants a success at the World Cup for England a, li- a little later on. But if, if I was in a bar and you asked me to nail down what the problems are with this England team at the moment, I think it's pretty simple. It's players being out of form or a couple of injury or fitness setbacks. But players being out of form being obviously players like Harry Maguire, um, uh, Dyer as well, maybe Nick Pope in goal as well. It's Gareth Southgate's style being a bit too cautious, maybe doesn't get the best out of creative players, maybe doesn't get the best out of your, your Phil Foden's and so on. And it's that switch between a back three and a back four. This team that doesn't spend many weeks of the year together as a unit has to switch between a back three and a back four depending on the opponent. And I think that probably doesn't help the cohesion. And it lends itself to Taylor's point that this team, although it is arguably good, it hasn't evolved or learned much, in at least in the past year. Taylor, does that sound like a good summation? Yeah, I think it absolutely does. And I think the order of those things is also pretty, pretty telling because I think it is, in this case, a lot of concerns around specific players. And those concerns are obviously connected to England and how do they fit into the starting 11 or do they fit into the starting 11. But it is also Harry Maguire is an obvious example situations outside of the national team it's his it's his situation with Manchester United it dates back to like the legal issues in Greece I've heard a lot of people talk about how that's kind of where his downturn in form begins and there's other players who I think are having issues with their clubs that are maybe bleeding into the national team and the form there Ryan and Graham one question for for you both that I think is worth establishing early for for American listeners who aren't as up on England I actually uh, called up our old buddy Sam Tai to ask him some questions about Southgate because I don't feel like I know him that well as a manager, as a tactician. And Sam's sort of takeaway, uh, like to summarize briefly and hopefully do him justice, was essentially that he 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 maybe gets a little bit of stick for or maybe too much stick for not being a tactician, for not being tactically minded. But at the same time, that isn't his strongest suit. He is more of a man manager. He's more of an individual kind of motivator and a team cohesion builder, which is maybe where some of the concern gets exacerbated that this team doesn't seem as cohesive as it could be. So I guess, Ryan, flipping your question back to you, is that a fair summary of Gareth Southgate or how would you summarize him as a manager uh, for England? I think from the outset that seems fair, but we don't know what he does with the with the whiteboard. Mm-hmm. I suppose is one way of looking at it. It sounds like you're describing like a Frank Lampard style player uh, manager as well, isn't it? Not vibes, I... but like man management specialist. Yeah, I which I'm not fully comfortable with because I I personally, as like an outsider, think Gareth Southgate has done a good job with all of the expectation and pressure that historically falls on an England manager, and maybe that's also because the ones that have existed in my lifetime of soccer supporting have not always been that great or proactive or progressive when it comes to the way they're playing soccer. Ray Hodgson in 2016 was, that was maybe the dullest England team I've ever seen. And that's saying something. So I think for me, Southgate coming in, it kind of breathed life into this team. It was a breath of fresh air after what happened with big Sam and maybe they're in a different situation. Maybe they're in a better situation, but I think he's done a good job of steering a pretty difficult to steer ship but I I then do look at the games themselves and wonder is he able to get the best out of those players does he make the right adjustments does he know how to use all of the attacking options he has Joe made a good point earlier in the week 
when we were talking about, it must have been about the US, I can't actually remember specifically what it was about, but he made a point that basically he gets frustrated at people's assessments of managers as good manager and bad yep. manager. Yeah. And yep. what the truth is a lot of the time is you have a, a manager who suits a, a, a specific period of time or the circumstances are right for that manager or they're wrong for that manager. I think it's entirely fair to say up until last year, Gareth Southgate had not just done a good job as England manager, he'd done an excellent job. Could he have done better in some instances? Yes, of course, but taking everything as a whole, he'd, he'd done an excellent job as England manager. It's not so much that I think now, and look, I'm not actually saying he is, uh, he should be sacked or anything. I think we need to wait and see how the World Cup goes. But the argument is that maybe this England team has grown beyond him, that the quality of the players that he's got have, they no longer need someone like Southgate to give them that safety net that he, he likes to play with Phillips and Rice as he did in the Euros last summer with, with that, that very conservative midfield. You now have guys like Jude Bellingham and Foden and Mason Mount and even guys who are not getting it in the squad like James Madison, Madison and, and Smith Rowe. These are the sort of players that in 2018, England didn't have any of those players. So it wasn't such of an, uh, an emphasis for Southgate to make, to make the best uh, of them, to get a system that would get the most out of players like that because those players didn't exist. Now those players do exist. And we're now seeing, I think, the limitations of Southgate as a tactician. I think he does a decent job sometimes of setting his team up. But one of the problems I have with him is his in-game management is quite poor. And this is actually a bad time to make this point, given how his subs changed the game against <laughs> Germany this week. But let's take a broader look at things beyond just that one game. I think Southgate often struggles to change matches from the touchline. If you look at how Serena Wiegmann did this for England at the Women's Euros, it's such an important quality to have as a manager in a major tournament. And I don't think Southgate has, back, has that. I think you look back at that 2018 semi-final against Croatia, where England start very well in that game. They take the lead, then Croatia start to take control of that game and England aren't able to flip it back. And we've actually seen that in two or three big games for England. That was the same story in the Euros final where England score early on. They have the best of the match for 30 minutes. Then Italy just slowly take control and you very, very rarely see England respond to something like that. So that's one of my issues with Southgate is his in-game management. I don't think is up to scratch of some of his peers. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's dig into um, Southgate's player selection and much more. Back shortly. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our big thing, England Spesh. Let's dig into <laughs> the uh, players that Southgate has been picking. Uh, one who's making many headlines and has done for a few months now, Harry Maguire. Yeah. Who um, <laughs> obviously is not necessarily in favour at his domestic club, but is still getting into the England team. Uh, viewed Graham as sort of the best option on the left side of a back three, which uh -huh. I'm not even sure how much the back three is going to be used in the group stage. Um, maybe we can talk about that. But um, he's one of a few players who is a, a controversial selection, should we say. To say the least, <laughs> I think. Um, things have gotten so bad for Harry Maguire this season, I am, I'm actually starting to feel a little bit sorry for him and I'm starting to kind of temper my criticism of him because you start to consider things like mental health and 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 I wonder if maybe Southgate putting him back in the firing line in this window maybe wasn't the best thing for for Harry Maguire even looking beyond football but there there is no denying that he is in a a bad moment in his career um Maguire against Germany he's he's completely at fault for the first goal he passes the ball straight to Musiala and then brings him down and in, in, inside the box and Germany score the penalty 
The second goal also comes from a mistake by Maguire. Um, and one of the things Maguire does when he makes one mistake, he goes into this hero mode where he, he tries to make amends by charging around all over the place and trying to do something special. And that's actually something I find really bizarre about him because it's the sort of thing you would normally associate with a younger, less mature player who maybe wasn't used to the the big occasion. This is a guy who's 29 years old. He's Manchester United captain. He's played at World Cup. So it's it's kind of difficult to explain why he does that. Um, but yeah, he loses the ball high up the, the pitch for the second Germany goal. There is a lot of time, I must say, between Maguire giving the ball away and Germany scoring. And it's an excellent finish from, is it Havertz that scores that one? The second one, I think yes, it was. Yes, it is, yeah. Um, so maybe it's a little bit difficult to put the blame entirely on Maguire, but that's that's just the way things are going for him at the moment. Everything he does seems to end up in a mistake yeah. or an opposition goal. And I think one of the most frustrating things about Maguire's inclusion for fans is that it seems to me there are better options out there at the moment. So Southgate, he sends home Fakayo Tomori before the Germany game. He's not even included in the matchday squad. And of course, Tomori is playing first-team football for the Italian champions, AC Milan in the Champions League. And he's he's a first-team figure. He's one of their most important players. Not only this, he plays as a left-sided centre-back for AC Milan. So you could very easily put him into that England team. And he's physically good and he's technically good and he's playing with confidence at a high level. So it's kind of baffling to me that Southgate continues to overlook Tomori, but he very much has his favourites. Southgate, he sees loyalty as as one of his traits as a manager. And I think now with Maguire, we're getting to the point where that's kind of tripping him up a little bit. Uh, Harry, Harry, England's Aaron Long Maguire. Is that what we're going to call him, Graham? <laughs> Harsh on Aaron Long, I think, at the moment. <laughs> well, so Graham, a thing that you mentioned in there is the mental health aspect. Uh, and I'm not going to speculate on Harry Maguire's mental health. What I will say is we're talking about a player, and I think it's easy to forget this. It is for me that until he moves to Leicester is at Sheffield. He's at Sheffield United, that is. He's at Hull City. He's at Wigan. He won uh, the championship, I think the promotion playoff. But this isn't necessarily a player who has been with Manchester United from the jump and has seen the ups and downs. He wasn't with Leicester when they won the title and has been at that level. This is a guy who has basically two seasons with Leicester that are very good, then gets that move to Manchester United, is the captain, has this huge transfer fee, is the captain of England, is this leader. And that, to me, is a person who has had a skyrocketing amount of success from one point to the other. And... I can imagine this is not a like, oh, poor Harry Maguire with his millions, but I can imagine that player is a player who has only had success, has only felt like I am the man. I got this. And if you have that level of confidence, I think you can do things on the pitch that make you that next level player. And I then believe that he has probably never faced this level of criticism at club and for country, both fronts. I think he gets attacked, and I think there are reasons for it. As you said, Graham, there are things in his performance that are not good. He doesn't help himself, but to me, there's an element there of just it is a player completely devoid of confidence. And I don't know how you fix that, because you, if you take him out of the firing line, so to speak, you're basically saying you're not playing in the World Cup, because that's what we have coming up. He can't really get back into the Man United team playing the way he does and having the lack of pace that he does. So I don't know how you help him rediscover that form, but I, I just I don't think it's suddenly the case of a player who's just not good enough and, and, and can't play. It, it's clear to me it's a player who has just completely lost all confidence, and confidence yeah. is such a part of playing at that level. But it remains a huge issue because I think Gareth Southgate wants to be the one to get him back in, onside, get him back in form, help yeah. him rediscover that. But, but 
that comes at the expense of the team playing well. That's not the duty of the England team, I'd argue, Taylor. True, I mean, true. The, the, it, I've got a quote from 2017, and Gareth Southgate said that he vowed to select players based on form, not reputation. And that's been Lol. his whole MO, which is what the MO should be of a national team. Why general. do national team managers ever speak? Like, it's the same thing, like, not defending him, but it's the same thing with Burhalter, where we're going to change the way Americans understand soccer or play soccer. Klinsman said, like, we're going to make the U.S. play beautiful soccer and be this proactive team. Managers always say things that are then going to come back yeah. to bite well, them this, this when they don't time. follow those rules. This, this, this is why... big time, isn't it? Because he, he says, I'll pick yeah. on form, not reputation. He picks Maguire, who is not in form. He's got Luke Shaw in the team. Uh, Tamori doesn't get a sniff in. Ivan Tony is in great form, doesn't get a sniff in. He's just not. And Mason Mount, I suppose, arguably not in great form with Chelsea, and, and he's in there. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't sit, sit with his, yeah. his philosophy, really, Graham. Yeah, and um, another player, maybe not this season, because actually at club level, he's not had the, the best of starts, but Trent Alexander-Arnold, even when he has been in incredible form for Liverpool as one of the best right-backs not just in the Premier League, but kind of people talk about Alexander-Arnold as one of the best right-backs of his generation and has the potential to be one of the best players in his position ever. And I read a stat the other day um, that said Danny Rose has play- played more minutes for England under Southgate than Trent Alexander-Arnold has, which is wow. astonishing when you're talking about yeah. the, the player that Alexander-Arnold is. I, I think this is where there's a there's a difficult line to be drawn or it's difficult to know where to draw the line with international football because I understand you're trying to build a team and it's national it's natural that national team managers should have favorites but the cycles in international football are so long and you're presented with so much evidence at club level that there is a line where you have to kind of drop your loyalty and bring in a player on form and you I don't think you want to go too far one way or the other. You don't want a team that's chopping and changing every single window on the basis of form. But equally, you don't want a team that isn't changing and isn't taking note of the form. And Southgate seems to be veering towards the latter. Yeah. Maybe he's losing control a little bit. Is that possible? I don't know. Well, I think one thing that was a, was a red flag with the latest window was we, we spoke, Taylor, you mentioned that one of Southgate's strengths has been his man management. And I think that is entirely fair, but... Then you read, you know, Ivan Tony getting called up to the England squad for the first time and then in both games getting sent home early without being given a cap. Yeah. It it doesn't speak of a great relationship between Southgate and Tony and and, and I think he has a good relationship with some players but then other players like Alexander Arnold who at this point it kind of feels like he's almost an international retirement. I can't imagine he's feeling very good about his England situation. So yeah. Alexander Arnold, Tomori, Tony, um yeah, there is a trend of of other players who maybe aren't one of his favourites. It also speaks to the lack of evolution that Taylor was referring to as well, because if you're not going to give Ivan Tony half an hour or 45 minutes, how does the team move on if you don't introduce new talent in form? Right? Yeah, and I think that has been a problem post-Euros in general. So I look at 2018, I already mentioned this, but England didn't really have many creative players in that tournament. So this, the tactic was very much, let's sit deep, let's play in the counter-attack, let's use set pieces. And I thought that worked very well. For the Euros, the next progression was that England needed a bit more structure in the centre of the pitch. So he brings in Phillips and, and Rice to do that. Then the problem becomes, okay, we're not creative enough. So the next progression for this World Cup should be let's integrate some of the creative players. And I, I think that's where it stalled for Southgate. England went 565 minutes without scoring an open play goal before Luke Shaw scored against Germany on Monday night. That is remarkable for a, a team like England who have yeah. the players that they have to go that long without scoring. I think that's, what is that, like nine hours or something like that? Incredible. Yeah. It's crazy when you go play Germany twice and Italy twice, I know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> mad, mad. <laughs> 
I mean, I hear you. I, I agree with Graham, though, that, like, if if you're talking about good enough to get out of the group stage, I, I, I think that shows the situation with England right now. That That's not the way it ever was. I mean, going back to 2010 and the headlines when you get England, Algeria, Slovenia, and Yanks is easy and how easy that group is going to be. We're going to win the World Cup. Like, if the conversation is now, I think we'll get out of the group. I think we'll win that group. That, to me, shows you where the expectation is because you're not preparing for, to to find a way to beat those bigger teams, to handle those bigger teams. And, and that really does then come down to finding that competitive balance to have the defensive side of things that you need to have but still be able to create those chances. And I think... It's a strange one. Again, there's a parallel there. I feel like much, much to a much more like high intensity degree between England and the United States that for the U.S., I think this is probably the most technically talented team we've ever had. And there's so much depth there that it does like or relative depth, I guess I should say, that it leads to those questions of why isn't it this guy? Why not that guy? Why can't this happen more? Why don't we play this way? And I think with England, it's the same. Graham's been making this point. You don't have the talent in in tournaments past that you do now. And the attacking ability, not even the ones who made this squad, but look at some of the players left off. Uh, Ollie Watkins, Jack Grealish, Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho, all left off this most uh, recent like uh, squad. Yeah. There's so much talent there that it becomes like, well, with all that talent, why aren't they scoring more goals? Why can't things happen? In, in a more progressive way, proactive way. And to me, the answer is like, because you don't have that many spots. Are you going to play Saka as a right wing back? Are you going to play Rashford as a left wing back? Like, is that what it's going to come down to? It's about finding that combination. And I think to some extent, it's what managers always struggle with after a cycle is how do you move players on, keep the players that you want to and keep them motivated and hungry and, and introduce new players. And I think it just becomes sometimes a bloated squad that is listless at the same time and finding a way to kind of trim some of that and then keep everybody pulling in the same direction is, is uh, so the way Gareth Southgate earns his money, which is what I'm saying about Greg Berhalter too. It all connects. Taylor, when you said, uh, are they going to play soccer? Uh, before oh, I processed, you talking about Bakaya Saka. I thought you yes. were doing like a Bostonian impression. Do you uh. want to play Saka? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's the way my brain works. Um, when you spoke to Sam Tai, <laughs> Taylor, did, yeah. um, did he did he speak much about the tactical outlooks, uh, what, what Southgate's doing and how it suits uh, tournament soccer? Um, n- not as much. I, I think mostly because we were uh, like under a compressed amount of time. But I think mostly it was that he wants to see them be really aggressive against Iran and essentially keep uh, numbers back with speed to handle the counterattacking threat that Iran will, will pose because I think that's what they're going to do. They're going to sit deep and then they're going to try to launch counters. Yeah. And he want and he did. He wanted it to be Saka as a, I think a left wing back. Saka, not. Saka. Saka. Uh, <laughs> there it is. Um, yeah, so that's I think good. I think like he wanted them to be really aggressive against Iran. Um, and I think that's probably the smartest thing to do because, as we've talked about on the U.S. shows, I think the smartest thing they could do against the U.S. is to be a conservative. And I think sitting deep in a back five uh, would be really, really smart. And I think he'll get criticized for it and attacked if it's nil-nil at halftime. But I think all it takes is the U.S. to get a little bit frustrated and give the ball away. And then that game goes from 1-0 to 3-0 or 4-0. Uh, if they try to be ball dominant and really aggressive against the U.S., I think that plays into their hands. And so I think that's where some of the variety and the ability to adapt is going to be essential. And that, to me, would be where I have concerns if I were an England fan, that 
he doesn't seem like he's able to get the best out of them that when they want to be more attacking, it seems like he is much more comfortable with them being the defensive team that can sit and counter with some of those attackers that they do have. Graham, what are your thoughts on on the tactics? Maybe referring to Iran, USA and Wales as well. Do do you see as a, obviously it seems that Southgate is comfortable with a back three when it's a more expansive, maybe a bigger team, should we say, that's going to come at England and sit and absorb in a back five. And I, I'm feeling like they're going to probably do the four-three-three against Iran because they're not going to need to sit back. Maybe that's not the case against the USA. Maybe not the case against Wales either. But what, what do you think about that? And what do you think about the, the, the switches that these players are made to made to do? I think this, with the tactical debate, I think some nuance is required. So I, I can understand to a certain extent why fans want Southgate to essentially liberate. England as as a an attacking outfit. You look at you look at the England the current England pool, and I think it's quite clear to see that they are stronger in the attacking positions. So you know Harry Kane, Mason Mount, Jack Grealish, Phil Foden, Jaden Sancho, Marcus Rashford, um, players who are not even kind of in that first team. Tammy Abraham, James Madison, who doesn't even get a look in this squad, um, and even players like Alexander Arnold and Bellingham. These are players with attacking instincts. England are stronger in the attack. I think teams... The, the the frustrating thing for me is that Southgate doesn't seem to have that toggle. And I'll draw a comparison to Serena Wiegmann, again, the England uh, women's manager who just helped England win or guided England to the to winning the women's Euros. And in, in games in those tournaments, in that, in that tournament, there were cases when England would sit back and absorb and hit on the counter. There were other games like the Norway match where they went full-on attack and they recognised that Norway were going to leave space in behind and they scored uh, you know a boat full of goals. That toggle is the thing that's missing for Southgate. I think it is entirely fair in some instances that he will go conservative. The teams that win major tournaments tend to be difficult to play against, difficult to break down. They have that structure. They have that that core conservatism. But it, it feels like he's not making the most of, of his talent. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that Southgate should fully unleash this team and go full vibes. But at times, I have to admit, it does feel like he's holding this this England team back. A little bit. I just wish he could find a way to to harness his attackers. Just just that little bit better. Just you know, five ten percent marginal gain, and uh, I think that could make all the difference in making England a, a truly dominant team. Because as much as it pains me, you look at that squad and that team and that talent. That's the capability of this England squad at the moment, particularly when you yeah. look at some of the struggles the other European countries are having. And also, that would make us more watchable, Graham. Which for decades, in general, England has not been very watchable. Because of the I conservative think, approach. and Yeah, of course. And as a fan, you value that. I'm not sure Southgate values that much. And, I, and to yeah. be honest, I'm not even sure he should value that much. His, his job is just to win games, um, regardless of whether it's entertaining or not. You know, Kevin Keegan's Newcastle team always spoken about as the most entertaining Premier League side of all time. Never won a Premier League title. Um, so I, I, I think Southgate is justified to keep his conservative core i just i just want him to have that toggle which Wiegmann has and i don't think he has all right let's take a quick break when we come back let's talk more about this world cup what it means for gareth southgate what it means for england and let's just tell me that everything's gonna be fine yeah <laughs> cool all right back soon 
Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our big thing. We were talking before the break about Southgate's tactics and the entertainment factor. Um, Taylor, for the most part, yep. I've not been entertained by this team, as I said, over yeah. several decades. There's been a few exceptions, around 15 minutes on Wednesday, for example. Um, do you think that's important? Nope. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> um, I think winning is important. And I think uh, to go, I just keep drawing parallels to the United States, this time to the U.S. women's team. It reminds me of the U.S. women in 2015, when there was so much consternation about Jill Ellis's tactics and is she getting this right and is she getting the best out of her team? And then they win the Women's World Cup. And there's still speculation about like, oh, well, they won uh, dis- or in spite of her, despite her. And, and she still didn't make this substitution. They didn't play that attractive of soccer. And ultimately, you're talking about a world champion a two-time world champion and i think you can debate are they the prettiest team but i think ultimately people don't remember the necessarily how attractive they were sometimes to graham's point i think that's how you remember teams that didn't win it is they were so fun versus i think you end up just winning remembering that this team won regardless of how good they were on the pitch i think certain legendary teams will always stand out as being really entertaining and also champions but for the most part i think it's about finding a way to win games the way you want to win them and i think this england team can win games being defensive with a back three or a back five and winning games one nil and grinding out results and making teams try to beat them and get overextended and then having the speed and the technical ability to counter and score it's not the prettiest, but I think it, it is a way to win. And if you win the World Cup, I think England fans are going to care a lot less about, well, it wasn't pretty and we didn't have dominant possession. Yeah. The, the other thing is entertainment can kind of be subjective. So a lot of people True. will talk about Barcelona as the most, or Pep, Pep Guardiola's Barcelona as being the most entertaining team ever. I kind of found that team quite dull at times. I, I kind of prefer, I'm very quite traditional British. Like I, I like, fast and furious counter-attacking football some of the football that Manchester United played under Ferguson like that that is my idea of entertaining entertainment and football so if Southgate was like right okay all of a sudden we're going to be an entertaining team you'll then have one one camp of people still complaining that it's not entertaining and then the other half may be happy and it feels like actually drilling down into what people think is entertaining might actually be worse for him than just going with his current approach yeah you're right we can just Portugal our way through this thing Wonderful. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Didn't hurt them. Um, one thing that also gives me a glimmer of hope, Graham, is the fact that many other big nations and uh, in Europe and beyond aren't going into this yeah. uh, tournament full of confidence. As we mentioned, Germany aren't in the finest of form. You could probably say the same thing about France. Uh, the US certainly probably aren't super happy with preparations and how they've gone. Um, even like Brazil are the favourites and Argentina are up there as well. They've not played European sides for a long time and um that might that might come to hurt them at some point um so so preparation isn't ideal graham for many teams and also for england as i mentioned or referred at the top of the show it's very common to go into a tournament with sky high expectations we're going to win this thing this team is the greatest let's let's call them the greatest and then knock them down immediately when they play badly in the opening game and going in with this slightly uh, low ebb if we're going to call it that, I think that is advantageous in many ways for the England team. We're having expectations a little lower, particularly with the last few tournament performances creating high expectations. So I'm, I'm kind of okay in terms of the lay of the land, Graham. Perhaps it could, it might all be okay on the night. 
or all right in the night. That's the saying. Uh, okay on the night. It doesn't quite have the same <laughs> okay, ring to right. it. Um, It'll be acceptable on the evening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah passable on the night. Um, but I'd, I'd also think we shouldn't underestimate just how important momentum can be before a major, major tournament. So I went back and looked at what England's form was like before the Euros, which is the Euros is, is England's best major tournament performance, uh, certainly with the men's team. Since 1966, and England were on, I believe, a, a six-game winning run ahead of that tournament, and so the teams that they had played over the, over the course of that run were, were nowhere near the the caliber of the teams that they have they've faced uh, recently. So it was Romania, Austria, Poland, Albania, San Marino, and Iceland. So all games that really England would be expected to win, but nonetheless, that that feel good atmosphere in the camp I think that's important going into a major tournament you're right Ryan there are a number of of big nations struggling at the moment so France only just avoided relegations from relegation from their Nations League group Germany have won just one of their last seven games Spain have been going okay but they still suffered this really damaging defeat at home to Switzerland there are a lot of questions about their their centre-back partnership of Eric Garcia and Pau Torres and Luis Enrique facing a lot of criticism in Spain he actually tweeted out like a table last night or yesterday which kind of showed um, Spain like making the last four of the Euros and finishing top of their their qualification group and finishing top of their Nations League group and basically his point was Spain are the only one that have ticked all all of those boxes but I think that also makes a point about all the other all the other big nations at the moment I do wonder how much of it comes down to just this very unusual schedule that we have this year with it being a, a World Cup in the middle of the season. I don't know whether some of the big nations, they build up that momentum over friendlies. So England played friendlies before the, the, the Euros last summer. And that, that gives you that opportunity to build up that momentum because you don't tend to get two big nations facing off in those pre-tournament friendlies. But now it's, you know, Nations League games and, and qualifiers that you're having before a tournament. So I do wonder maybe whether shaking that snow globe with the schedule has, has made a, a an, an impact. But it's certainly true that a lot of big nations are struggling and, and I, I do I kind of hope this leads to the most World Cup we've had since 2002 I look at teams like Denmark who have been flying recently and, and I wonder did they make the semi-finals of the Euros I can't remember it was England was it Denmark that England beat in the semi-finals anyway I wonder if they make it as far as that in this tournament as well I, I think it, it, the the environment, the landscape is ripe for a, for a, a dark horse to really make a, a good run I guess Croatia did it at the last World Cup so maybe replicating that Potentially so. All right, why don't we tackle, Taylor, the question of what constitutes a good World Cup for England? And I'm kind of, I don't know how things are going to pan out. Even in the group stage, I could see England winning all three games. I could also see England having a gritty draw against Iran, losing against the US, and maybe drawing against Wales and going home as well. But for, for me, the benchmark, a bad World Cup is not getting out of the group. An acceptable World Cup is getting into the knockout stages, and yeah. anything more than that is a bonus. No, it yeah. has to be more than that, surely. Surely. If England go out in the last 16, that's an acceptable World Cup with this team. Depends who it's against, really, I think. And I guess also, that's fair. That I is fair. It, it also depends what kind of performance is put on. If it's if it's entertaining, not entertaining, if it's courageous, shall we say, it, basically, if it's, if it's feckless and... Yeah. drab and dreary that won't be acceptable if there's a, f- a good fight that's been put up that will be more acceptable for the nation i'd say graham do you think that's fair in terms of the media coverage and whatnot 
I just don't think it's going to get treated like that. I think if England, I, I think it's a fair point. It depends who it's against. But even even still, I think if England, who, who's the favourite for this World Cup? Brazil. Brazil. Right? Yeah. So if Brazil beat England in the last 16, I think Southgate still gets a lot of heat for that. If Brazil um, beat England on penalties, or if Brazil beat England 5-0, it's different though, right? It is. <laughs> I think 5-0 results in Southgate losing his job. I think a penalty defeat probably saves his job, or at least he he stays in a job for a while longer. I still think the the media, unfairly or not, I still think the media reaction to that is going to be a spiky one if England go out that early. Yeah. Taylor, how do you feel about it? What what constitutes failure? What constitutes success in your mind? I'm trying to look. All right. So if England, uh, if you finish top of Group B, you play the runners-up of Group A, which is Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, and the Netherlands. And then if you're runners-up, you play the winner of that group. So, like, if England were to finish second and then they lose to the Dutch, I think depending on how the Dutch go, like, yeah, Ryan, I hear your argument of um, that it, it kind of depends on who they face in the knockout round and what that result looks like. If it is sort of they draw their way out of the group and then don't score in that first uh, knockout round game and then lose on penalties. I don't think it it can be seen as a success at all. And I think like the 2010 World Cup is another sort of example of that where they don't have a very convincing group stage and then they get trounced by Germany in the first round. Yes, it's a German team that's very good, but it's also an England team that just was not there on the day, even if that goal uh, should have counted for being over the line. Even so, it's still not really an impressive performance. And so I think it can be one of two things. It can be an, an England team that has really high-flying games, and maybe you all go in and just destroy Iran. Maybe you take the United States apart, or uh, maybe it is Wales who you like put to the sword, uh, metaphorically, that is. Uh, so then I, I think like if it is... If there are big results there, I think a sort of grinding nil-nil draw in the knockout round that doesn't go well, I think is seen as more of a like, oh, this team that was really engaging just came up against a team that didn't want to play. And I think that always sort of lets the the one team off the hook a little bit if the other team is just sitting back and defending and not trying anything, and then eventually you lose on penalties. I think there's some sympathy there, but I think... It requires England to either grind their way to the semifinals for this to, to be a successful tournament, or it requires them to sort of uh, f- like uh, fly too close to the sun, basically, and be too expansive and maybe score some goals, but then, yeah, draw games 3-3 or lose games 4-3. And that, uh, again, I think is is entertaining and maybe memorable, but not necessarily successful. I think those are two ways in which it can be a successful World Cup, basically. Okay. I don't see us flying too close to the sun. I just think it's a bit too bucked up for that. But we we shall see. Graham, what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think my point then being that the only way this is a successful tournament is to have a deep run where yeah. you're not playing particularly engaging soccer. Yeah, and avoiding major teams until the very latter stages. Allah, yeah, 2018 World Cup, arguably. <laughs> um, yep. Graham. In what circumstance does Gareth Southgate come out of Qatar with his job intact? Is it, I mean, a quarterfinal loss? Is that good enough? What do you think? Um, that's a difficult one to answer because I'm trying to balance my own opinion with what I think the opinion of the FA will be. So I think the FA has kind of molded itself around Southgate yep. in that he has been 
U21 manager. I think he was involved in a technical role as well. And then he took the, the senior team job. And I think the FA see him as very much a product of their system. Yeah. And so I think it would take a calamity at the World Cup for him to lose his job. Um, whether I think he should lose his job or not, I guess, is, is a different matter. Personally, I think a successful, an out-and-out successful World Cup for England is making the final again, in my opinion. Uh, I think that this team is good enough to... That would be the standard that other nations would be held to, whether you're France or Germany. And England should, with the talent they've got, they should be up there. They've made the final of the last Euros. They made the semi-finals of the World Cup before then. Um, so that is an out-and-out success. The, the waters get a little bit muddy if it's a quarter-final or a semi-final. I would really need to know what the circumstances of that defeat was, whether you're getting beat by an Iceland, then obviously that is a much bigger problem than if you're losing to a Brazil or an Argentina or a France or whoever like that. But yeah, successful World Cup is, is, is making the final. And, and I'm, and like Ryan, I'm, I'm kind of getting your, a sense of your confusion here and how you should be feeling. Cause like <laughs> I, I make a point about the, at the start about England's form being bad and their nation, the nation's league not really suggesting they're all that. And you kind of, you kind of go, no, no, they're, you know, that, let's not take note of that. And then now I'm kind of setting the bar quite high and it seems like you're not that comfortable with that. Is that just the state of mind of being an England fan? I, I guess a little bit. Yeah. I'm a walking contradiction at the best of times, Graham. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm happy with the, low low uh the low expectation but also i have low expectations as well i suppose that's how we we're pairing it there's an interesting um note i don't know if you saw this greg dyke when he became chairman of the football association this is nine years ago he says he set the whole of english football two targets the first was to reach at least the semi-finals of euro 2020 and the second was to win the world cup in 2022 so mission accomplished for the first part of that even you know over overachieved on that but to meet that target of winning the World Cup in 2022, Taylor, that feels like a a bit of a stretch. If you'd asked me last year, if you'd asked me at the end of last year, I'd have, and I think I even said on the Total Soccer Show, yeah, I think we can win this thing. I don't feel that way now. Oh, no? no. <laughs> not, not feeling world-beating? I mean, I, here's the thing. I think Graham has already laid it out. Many, many historical powers are in... Positions that aren't exactly strong, and that's not even including somebody like Italy who won't even be at the tournament. So I think there are very few teams that are feeling like, yep, we got this in the bag. And again, I think historically the teams that always feel like they've got it in the bag tend to crash out in the group stage. So I think there are... There is more reason for optimism than the recent form might suggest. It's still an England team that I think have plenty of talent, plenty of ability to make runs as we've already seen. I, I don't think Gareth Southgate, I agree with Graham, I don't think he's very much under threat. He's got, what, two years left on his deal. So I think it would require him losing all three games of the of the group stage. I think even a sort of uninspired showing i don't know if england will be as inclined to pull the trigger as uh, somebody on the athletic i forget who it was was making the argument that far more likely is southgate walks away from this team if it doesn't go well in this tournament it doesn't seem like he would wait to be sacked or want to be sacked or want to stick around if it seems like he's kind of being blamed for the way things go so i think <laughs> i was trying to start off positive i've taken us to gareth southgate walking away from the england job let me take us back to why it well, might on, not Taylor. be that bad he'd mm-hmm. be the first manager to not wait to be sacked and get his butt payout wouldn't he if he did that <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he's a man of such integrity ryan you know <laughs> Well, I, I I just think it's more so. I don't think he wants to be fired. I think it's 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 better 
at the international level to walk away and say, like, yep, I did what I could. It, it's just not working. I, I feel like to stick around, I, I don't think he'll come away from this with the, like, if it goes really poorly with the feeling of, like, but I can turn this around. I can keep this going in the right trajectory. And I don't think the FA will fire him short of a disastrous World Cup. So I could see a scenario in which he's just, he's not really up for the challenge of picking this team up or doesn't feel like he's the right guy. Yeah, maybe I am being too sympathetic to him or seeing him as like such a noble individual. Uh, but but I think that aside, there is just more reason for optimism for England because I think if they do go back to a, a pretty defensive mindset, and I don't think that's the worst thing because I think you have plenty of personnel to allow that to happen, and then you have maybe – some uh, preparation, like obviously in the past games, but then it'll lead it to the World Cup for how you can make that attacking spark if need be, how some of those changes can be briefed ahead of time to be ready to come in and be more attacking or change the structure of the game a little bit. I think there's no reason why England can't make a deep run, but I think it absolutely starts with that first group stage game. I think a win against mm-hmm. Iran is absolutely essential, not just because you want to start off with a win, but because if they go up against Iran and they're uninspired and they're defensive and they only create a few shots and they don't score and it's nil-nil, the media, the fans, the team itself will probably be pushing to, all right, next game, it's U.S., we got to take it to them, we got to be aggressive. And as I said earlier, I think that plays into the U.S.'s hands. So I think if the pressure is on them to get a win against the United States, I think that is the worst possible position for them. I think a win against Iran sets them up to be able to absorb pressure and sit off and make the United States open up, and then you kind of blitz them, and then suddenly you've got six points, and I think the pressure is off, People are feeling better, and then you can sort of start to look ahead to the knockout round and prepare for that, and I think that's obviously uh, where they would like to be. Here's the the strongest argument in, in my eyes for keeping Southgate, even after a bad World Cup. Who replaces him? Like, who, who's mm-hmm. the, who is the obvious candidate to take Greg over? Greg Berhalter. <laughs> yeah, per, perhaps. Yeah, he might be looking for a job uh, after the World Cup. Um, but if you look at the, the guy's that have been previously mentioned as future England managers. So Eddie Howe, he's in a job at Newcastle that I don't think he's going to leave anytime soon, bar getting getting sacked. And then the other one, until fairly recently, was Graham Potter, which I think would have been a good a good fit. If he's still at Brighton right now and England have a bad World Cup, I could see myself uh, being swayed into, into making the argument for Potter as the next England manager. But he's just, t- he's just taking over at Chelsea. He's so still he's not the favourite, gonna- Graham. As of like yesterday on the, with the bookies, Graham Potter is amazingly still I, the favourite to be the next yep. permanent England manager, which is insane. Uh, oh, maybe it's was Gusudink, um Russia manager and Chelsea manager at one point. Yeah, maybe was, they want to yeah. do that. It was. Yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, you don't really get that very often. That's a classic football manager uh, ploy <laughs> where you're like, ah, I quite fancy being an international manager, but I don't want to do it for the full time I'm playing this game, so I'm going to do both at the same time. Um, yeah, maybe Potter, co-England uh, Chelsea manager, but actually I, I looked at those odds myself and I think that's more a statement on when the bookies think Southgate's going to get sacked, i.e. they don't think he's going to get sacked right. anytime soon. And so they're counting on Chelsea uh, chewing up and, and spitting out Potter by the time that Southgate is, is, is sacked. But yeah, there's not many there's not many options out there. Pochettino was at the England game on Monday, but I, I reckon he gets a, another big Premier League job or a European job. I don't think he goes inter- into international manager. So I think if Southgate goes, you're looking at either Gerard or Lampard, 
and I'm not convinced either of them are necessarily better than Southgate. Or the other kind of half-realistic option I came up with was maybe Brendan Rodgers. I know he's a Northern Irishman, but obviously has been in the Premier League for for a long time now. Um, that might work in the right circumstances. I know things are going pretty poorly for him at Leicester City, but he does tend to start out jobs pretty well. He's maybe the only option that I could think of, and he's not a perfect option either. So I think that that is something that's on Southgate's side. Well, that's Steve Cooper. He'll get... Uh, replace Sue Mooney. Yeah, I I quite like Steve Cooper, but getting promoted with Forrest, I don't know if that is a particularly strong CV when you're talking about next England managers. But then again, Southgate's CV wasn't particularly strong when he took over, and he's he's done a decent job. He has indeed. All right, let's wrap up this conversation, um, Taylor. You you struck the fear into me because I'm pretty sure that. Uh, England will not beat Iran in that opening game. I think Carlos Coro's Iran side are going to bunker down pretty hard, and England aren't going to know what to do with that. And I think I, I think it's got draw written all over it. So, but don't you feel that. more comfortable? Don't you feel more comfortable being nervous and apprehensive ahead of a tournament as opposed to like, now nah, we got this again? Anytime historically, someone has felt like, yeah, we got this in the bag. We're confident. We're going to win again. See your headlines in 2010 uh, prior to the World Cup starting. That doesn't really go well. I really do find the idea that like having there be low expectations, not not just does it take like the pressure off, but more so that it it sort of allows for if there is a win against Iran, if there is sort of a collective spirit there. England fans have shown themselves to be willing to, I'm putting it generously, be willing to turn around their opinion and get back on board when it seems like it might be coming home. And so I think that might be where England needs to be, is to sort of not have that pressure, like, if anything, have that fatalism of like, nah, we're going to be terrible, it's going to be awful. And then when things are better than awful, things seem just fine. So maybe you could exist in that world, Ryan. That might be where I am as well, and several other groups of national team fans too. So welcome to the fold. (laughs) The more that we have spoken about the 2010 World Cup, I'm getting serious 2010 vibes about this this England team, just the way the group is as well, obviously with the US there, and and I don't know why, like Iran, Algeria, it kind of feels... It kind of feels like England might I mean, struggle very, to, to very them defensive down. teams that yeah, exactly. like aren't going to try to score. Yeah, oh. yeah, it feels like a similar sort of test. And I've got visions of Rooney shouting into the camera. What is it he said? Nice to hear your home fans booing you. You know, oh, that's yeah. what's going to happen at this World Cup. Oh my gosh! All right, better, well, Ryan. <laughs> whatever happens, guys, we'll be together mm. in New York for the group stage recording Welcome together. to the suck. Live show uh, at Littlefields, Brooklyn um, on November 20th. Whatever happens, guys, for England, if it's clear it's not coming home uh, in that group stage, group stage, will you both give me big hugs? No. Yeah. I will, I'll give you a big <laughs> hug and then, I'll, and then I will quietly whisper in your ear, in your face. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, what I'll do. do that and whisper, yeah. you yeah. deserve this. <laughs> it's all your fault. It is your fault. I'll do the reverse Robin Williams from Goodwill Hunting. I'll hug you and then say it's your fault. Your, your immediate answers to that question were both exactly what I expected from both of you. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. And thank you both very much for engaging in this big thing. Taylor Rockwell, pleasure as always. Pleasure was mine, my friend. Graham Ruthven, thank you, sir, for discussing England Senior for an hour or so. <laughs> thank you, Ryan Bailey. I hope that wasn't too painful. Uh, yeah, I, I'm no less or more assured than when we started, I think is where I'm at. But thank you very much, Graham. That's what we aim for. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you very much, listener. We'll be back on the feed with another one very soon. But for now, bye. It's coming home.